Last week we kicked off our five-part series on what in the world is going on. And we began by looking at the question, what on earth am I here for? And this is the answer that we came up with by looking primarily at the first chapter of the book of Genesis, the beginning of the story. Then the Lord, sorry, let me back up. I have been created in the image of God. I have been put here on earth to rule and subdue God's creation by participating in his creative work, shaping the shapeless and filling the empty for the benefit of humans and for the glory of God. And one of the most powerful ways in which I can do it is through carefully crafted words of encouragement, blessing, and prayer. And I trust that this week, past week, some of you have had some practice in actually doing that shaping and that filling. But of course, it immediately prompts the question, what have we done to mess up this awesome potential and calling that is described here in these words? On a global scale, we've got terrorism, uh, wars, systemic injustice. On a national scale, we have corporate corrupt greed and corruption, political corruption. We've got urban crime. At a personal level, we have domestic violence and all kinds of things like that. And so, what has happened to mess it up? For that, we're going to go back and start in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1 ended with the, with the creation of human beings and their glorious commission to continue their function as image bearers of God, filling, ruling, and subduing. <clears throat> Genesis 2 retells the story of creation, but from the perspective of the first humans. And in the middle of that, we have an interesting test. Read it with me as we fill God's house with God's word. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, this tree was an ordinary tree. And the fruit, and we don't know that was an apple, by the way, was nothing magical about the fruit. What was the point of this test by God? Last week we learned that human beings were created in the image of God, and one aspect of the divine image is this freedom. Freedom to choose. And so Adam and Eve, as image bearers of God, had that freedom. But freedom to be true, truly freedom, requires a couple of preconditions. It requires, first of all, that there be alternatives to choose between, and secondly, that there is no interference from outside. So in other words, if I told you, you can wear any colored shirt that you want, but I told every manufacturer he could make only white shirts, you have no choice. Or, if they could make all kinds of shirts, but every time you chose a shirt other than white, I kind of intervened and miraculously zapped it and turned it into white. Again, you have no freedom. Freedom to be true freedom requires alternatives and no interference. And that was the point of this test. God basically said, you can do anything you want. You can enjoy all of the beautiful creation I made. It is for you. Just one thing, don't eat the fruit of this particular tree. And so the choice was simple before them. Obey me and live, disobey me and die. So this test, if you will, represented the reality of the moral freedom that Adam and Eve had. They were perfect 
created in a perfect environment, but inherent in the freedom to choose, lay the possibility that they could use that freedom to rebel against God. So that was the essence of the test. How did they fare? So now we move to Genesis 3, from the test to the tempter. Verse 1 says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now in the Bible, the serpent is a personification of the devil. Now in enlightened postmodern North America, we laugh at the idea of demons and devils and stuff like that. But in most of the rest of the world, there is not only a very active belief in these things, there is a tremendous amount of experience as well. And do not simply ascribe that to their primitiveness. The chaos in life caused by demonic forces is very real and significant. Now, of course, Satan is very happy for us in North America to not believe in his existence. After all, how powerless are we towards an enemy who exists, but we don't even believe he exists? In the biblical story, the master story that we are going to be learning over these five weeks, the devil makes his entrance very early on in the story. Which tell, and notice also that the initial emphasis on the opening words about him was that he was the shrewdest, or the NIV says, the craftiest of all the creatures. That gives us a clue right away as to the purpose of the following verses. Yes, they are there to show us how the first man and woman ended up breaking this simple commandment of God. But even more than that, it exposes us to the strategy that the devil in, in employed to get them to cross that line. And he's crafty. And the reason you and I need to pay attention to that is that millennia later, the same devil uses exactly the same strategy to get us to cross the same boundaries. So he begins. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? He, he pretends astonishment. Now, come on, Eve, you really think God said that? Just kind of subtly implying right away that the first thing we need to do as creatures is to question our Creator's words. Notice also how in this he manages to sow a seed of doubt about the goodness of God. Notice what he says. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees? That's not what God said. In fact, he said you can eat the fruit from any of the trees. Just one tree. <laughs> He takes a very tiny restriction and he blows it up into a huge restriction, thereby calling into question the goodness of God. Well, Eve tries to correct him. She does a pretty good job except for a little chink in the arm. Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed. So far, so good. She kind of corrects the devil. But then notice this. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. God didn't say you mustn't touch it. It's actually a pretty good idea not to touch what you shouldn't eat. But the fact is God didn't say it. So even though she's correcting the devil, she's already beginning to slip a little bit in that direction by making the commandment a little bit more restrictive than it is. And of course you give the enemy that inch, he takes the proverbial mile, and now he goes flat out. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. Earlier on he was just questioning, did God really say? Now he comes out of the flat, out and God said you will die, you're not going to die. In other words, he's not only calling into question the goodness of God, he said God's a liar, by the way. He's an out and out liar. And then he also calls into question the motives of God. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. 
And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Hey, Eve, do you know why he's telling you not to eat, do this? He doesn't really care about you. He's just jealous. Isn't that amazing? Satan manages to put on God his motives. He's the one who was jealous. He was the one who would not submit to the glory of God as above his own glory. And he attributes it. And notice also, the real danger of the satanic temptations is they are not out and out lies. They are half-truths. There are two half-truths contained in this statement. The first one is, your eyes will be opened as soon as you do, and you will be like God. They were already like God. Remember we learned that last week? They were just a little lower than the angels. little lower than God himself. They were made in the image of God. And as they continue to exercise this amazing destiny to, to fill and to rule and to subdue, shaping the shapeless and filling the empty, they would become more and more like God. It was God's intention for them to become more like God. So that was the half-truth. What was the lie implies in it? But you don't do it God's way. Okay. That's the point. Don't do it through loyalty to God and dependence on God. Do it by asserting your independence of God. And then the second half-truth you will know both good and evil. Now, of course it was God's desire for them to know good and evil. That's the truth part of it. The half-truth comes in in that there are two ways in which we can know good and evil. One is to accept God's definition and the other one is for us to define it ourselves. And so Satan's point is the truth is, yeah, you, God wants you to know the difference between good and evil and you will do it. But don't do it God's way by letting him define what is good and evil. Why don't you just define it yourself? And so you see, this, this is at heart the essence of his temptation. Now that doubt about God's goodness, his word and his motive has entered in, Eve takes a good look at the forbidden fruit. And once that forbidden fruit comes into view, she becomes subject to three more powerful forces. What are they? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for graining wisdom, Three things happened. First of all, it was good for food. It appealed to the physical appetites. Secondly, it was pleasing to the eye. It appealed to the emotional and the aesthetic dimension of our lives. And thirdly, it was desirable for gaining wisdom. That is an appeal both to the intellect and to pride at the same time. Now the interesting thing is, none of these desires were wrong in themselves. Physical desires, emotional and aesthetic appetites, the desire for wisdom and significance through that, are all God-given. These desires were created by God. In fact, not only did God create the desires, He provided for the satisfaction of those desires as well. For earlier on we read, the Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground. Notice the description, beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. Therefore God wanted to satisfy their aesthetic appetites. He made beautiful trees. He wanted them to satisfy their physical appetites. They were good for food. And he wanted to satisfy their intellectual appetites for significance. By making them in his own image. And said you rule and subdue as my representatives. There's nothing wrong in the desires. The physical, the aesthetic, the emotional and the intellectual desires. Are all right in themselves. Made by God. And to be satisfied by God. What then was the essence of the satanic temptation? Yeah, satisfy them all, but do it by asserting your independence. This is the fundamental technique of every temptation of Satan. It is to get you to satisfy legitimate desires in illegitimate means. So he will take the 
legitimate desire for an appetite like sex, for example, but encourage you to satisfy it outside of marriage, either literally or virtually. He will take the perfectly legitimate desire for work and make work into an idol and we become workaholics to the destruction of both people and our homes. He will take the perfectly legitimate desire for significance, but instead of shaping and filling people, we use people to shape and fill ourselves. Well, once doubt in the word of God, his goodness, his motives, had taken hold. And the forbidden fruit came into view and three, three forces came into play. The potential for the satisfaction of the physical appetites, the emotional and the aesthetic appetites, as well as the intellectual appetite to gain wisdom. The battle was lost. And it says that she ate. Now, once she ate, something else happened, or something else didn't happen. Remember what God had said, in the day that you eat, you'll die. Well, she ate, and she didn't die. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were Eve, and that happened to me, I'd say, hey, what's going on here? Maybe the devil's right. <laughs> I ate, I didn't die. God said I would die. Satan said you won't die. Who's real? Who's telling the truth right now? And so she takes another bite. She says, Adam, come on, you eat too. Looks good, tastes good, and we're not dying. And so she gives it to him and he eats it as well. Someone summed up this process in this beautiful one sentence. Eve doubted the divine word. She suspected the divine goodness. She grasped for the divine greatness and she died. She suspected, doubted the divine word, suspected the divine goodness grasped for the divine greatness, and she died. We need to move forward thousands of years from this incident to where you and I are sitting here today. And we're dealing with exactly the same tempter using the same techniques in 2009-80. And his fundamental method is still, as I said, exactly the same. Taking legitimate desires and encouraging us to satisfy them in illegitimate ways. And he will use exactly the same techniques that he used with the enemy. He will begin by undermining our confidence in the word of God. Did God really say? Only the 2009 updated version might sound something like this. Hey, don't you know all the results of all the latest scholarly research that has shown you that this is nothing but a bunch of fairy tales? That's a culture-bound book. How can you possibly apply it? to North America today. Those are some of the ways in which he will cast doubt on the word of God. Then he will call into question the goodness of God. He'll take the Ten Commandments and say, see, God is just out to spoil your fun. This God that you hear about, he's looking out for anybody who's enjoying life and he zaps them with the commandments and says, stop it. Of course, he's hiding all the time carefully the fact that God, the purposes of God's commandments is to protect you and set you free. Or he will show you the suffering that is in the world and say, you think God is good? Look at all the mess that he allows to happen. All the while hiding from the fact that the bulk of the suffering in this world is caused by decisions that human beings make. 
And once he has sown the seeds of doubt about God's word and about the goodness of God and other dimensions of his character, would we come a little bit closer and take a look at the forbidden fruit? And when it happens, exactly the same three forces come into play. First of all, physical desires. Whether it is food or sex or any other physical desire that is satisfied. And that prospect becomes attractive. He will appeal to our emotional and aesthetic desires. Cars, houses, affirmation, love. And then the punchline, the killer always, is intellectual desire and pride. Our our clamoring of our souls for recognition, approval, vindication, advancement, success. All of those things. With doubt about God's word and about God's goodness and the prospect of the satisfaction of strong desires, rationalization begins to kick in at that point. Now we will rationalize what we are about to do. And in this Satan is right next to us giving us plenty of rationalizations. I'm thinking back to a time many, many years ago. I was talking to a man who was planning to leave his wife of many years. And he gave me two reasons. First reason he said was, I have no physical attraction for my wife anymore. That's appealing to the physical desires. And then he said, as for this other person, not only is she so much more attractive, she's she's an outdoors person. She loves sports, which is all the things. She loves all the things that I love. Now we have the emotional and the aesthetic desires comes. And he was set up for the rationalizations. And I'll tell you the kind of rationalizations that I hear most of the time. You have a mind of your own. Don't let somebody else tell you what to do. And one time, one time, I even heard this. Pastors don't know anything about real life. They just sit in their studies. This from a woman in this congregation who's long gone, 20 years now, later on planning to, in, to enter into a very, very unhealthy marriage relationship. Those were her words to her pastor at that time. And indirectly to me when she heard that I agreed with her pastor. Besides, you can interpret scripture. You know, there are many different ways to interpret scripture. These are all the kinds of rationalizations that quicken. And by the way, with all this stuff in there and those rationalizations ready at hand, we bite. Isn't it remarkable that a story written thousands of years ago can reflect so accurately the processes that every one of us goes through? Don't be too quick to dismiss this as a fairy tale. And by the way, there's more. There's more. Let's go back to what happened. How are we going to handle the fact? How are we going to handle the fact that God said, then the day you eat, you will die, and they didn't die? Did they die or didn't they die? Didn't look like they did, but they actually did. So let's go back to the story and see what happened afterwards. At that moment, at the moment they ate, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They were no longer comfortable with the way they had been made. They were no longer comfortable with somebody else, even the most intimate relationship in their life. They were no longer comfortable with being seen for who they really were. This is psychological alienation. There is alienation from within. Psychological death or internal alienation. 
Then verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. This is spiritual death, alienation from God. He who was a walking partner in the evening in a beautiful garden, now they had to hide from him. Thirdly, then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied. By the way, men, Sam already gave a little word to men. Here's a second one. Why did he go after Adam? Why didn't he go after Eve? She did the, She made all the mess, didn't she? But he goes after the man. Because he's, he's responsible. wonder what he was doing all the time while Eve and the devil were having that conversation. Why didn't he step in? Where was he? Where are you? He replied. I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked him. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Interesting, right? He wouldn't make the connection between his disobedience and his nakedness. God forced him to look at the action that resulted in that assurance. Then the man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. And as I pointed out to you before, those of you who are long timers here, he blamed two people in one sentence. He blamed the woman and he blamed God for giving her the woman. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And of course she learns very well from her husband. She said, the devil made me do it. That's why I ate it. This is buck passing. Alienation from one another. Social death. Then he said to the woman, God, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband but he will rule over you. This is the most concrete example of the relational chaos. Huge domestic disharmony. This is the seed of the battle of the sexes that has been going on since then. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat. By the way, he's not indicting him for listening to his wife. That's not the problem. Is he listened to his wife and did what he shouldn't, God shouldn't have done. Whose fruit I commanded you not to eat. The ground is cursed because of you. I'll come back to that in a minute. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of his grains. This is vocational death, alienation from nature. And then finally he said, By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust and to dust you will return. This is physical death, another dimension of internal alienation. So, did they die? You bet they did. They died psychologically, they died spiritually, they died relationally, they died vocationally, and they died physically. It was far more comprehensive a death than they could ever have imagined. God was right, devil was a liar. Again, let me ask you the question. Isn't it remarkable that an ancient story can have such a powerfully accurate indictment on the present human condition. Not only did it describe so beautifully and accurately the process by which we are tempted today, it describes the consequences so perfectly. Let me go over them again. Psychologically, the psychological alienation. Most of us are not comfortable in some dimension or other with the way God made us. I remember the first 16 years of my life, I was frustrated all the time that I was short. It doesn't bother me anymore. But it certainly did at that time. I know Vijay when he was growing up until grade 10. That's the one thing he was always concerned about. Because he went to a Dutch school and all his Dutch friends were a foot taller than him. You know, Didn't help. <coughs> and we don't really, we're not never comfortable really with anyone knowing us the way we are. Arthur Kessler, a secular psychologist many years ago said, the fig leaf has moved from the genitals to our faces. 
Spiritual death, God is really not a natural part of most people's lives. They can shut him up for one hour in a church on a Sunday morning and manage to hear about him then, or, or an occasional festival in a temple or a mosque or whatever. But he's not a natural part of our lives. If he's part of our lives at all, he's distant and uninvolved. Relationally, we know that. We're relational difficulties, especially within marriage, that which is the most intimate of all relationships is the one that is most fraught, often with conflicts. We want intimacy, but we are afraid of it. Vocationally, most people drag themselves to work every day, waiting for the day, 40 years from now, when they can finally retire and stop doing it. What a way to live a life. By the way, I'm not making that up. Stud Sterkel wrote a book called Working many years ago, based on extensive research. And the number is approximately 80% of North Americans hate their jobs and wish they could be doing something. It's a mark of vocational alienation. And then, of course, physical degeneration. We start dying from the day we are born. So, let me ask you again. Fairy tale? Find me another fairy tale that is so razor sharp in its analysis of the human condition. So now we have the answer to our question for today. Why is the world so messed up? Our first parents fell prey to the tempter's strategy and used their free will to assert their independence of God thus plunging themselves and the entire human race into a comprehensive death. So much so that from the moment of our birth, we are marked by the five faces of death, born of a deep-seated independence of God. Let me read it for us again. Why is the world so messed up? And you read it with me now. Our first parents fell prey to the tempter's strategy and used their free will to assert their independence of God, thus plunging themselves and the entire human race into a comprehensive death. So much so that from the moment of our birth, we are marked by the five faces of death, born of a deep-seated independence of God. Remember David, the young man we looked at last week, who gazed upon the beauty of the night sky and broke through to an amazing sense of his significance when that man was taken and became a king, and he was a good king. He ended up committing adultery and murder. He didn't escape the seed. And so in, in that same book of Psalms that, uh, our Israel's worship manual, we find him saying this, I was, for I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. So now today we have six billion sinners in this world. Are you surprised that the world is in such a mess? In fact, remember the curse, God said the ground is cursed because of you. The inanimate world is cursed because of us. And the Apostle Paul, who was an early Christian leader, writing to a group of Christians in, a, in, in Rome, says this, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. So, here's the question. With a powerful, crafty enemy before us, Marked by the five faces of death ourselves. With a cursed creation because of our rebellion. How are we going to become God's children? How are we going to enter into the glorious freedom that will actually liberate creation as well? The answer to that lies in another story of temptations. This devil, thousands of years later, Astonishing as it may seem to you and to me, tried the same tactics on another man. Only this man's name was Jesus. The God who became a perfect man. And he used exactly the same three appeals. First to the physical appetite. 
After 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, Jesus was hungry and the devil says to him, why don't you just make these stones into bread? Now tell me something, anything, anything sinful in making stones into bread? We could feed a lot more people if we could do that. What was the sin? Don't check with him. Just do it. The second temptation, he took him up to the top of a mountain, showed him all the world and said, hey, I'll give you all this. That is an appeal to the aesthetics. To the eye, what the eye can see. The third temptation, he took him to the top of the mountain and said, You're the son of God. Now that's an appeal to pride. You're the son of God. Look who you are. You're the great one. Jump off. Let God deliver you. And by the way, Satan quoted the scriptures. He knows the Bible really well. He said, in Psalm 9, he quoted another psalm. He said, God will hold you up. And guess what that miracle will do? Hundreds and thousands will flock to you, Jesus said. He appealed to the physical appetite. He appealed to the aesthetic and the emotional appetite. And he appealed to pride. And you know what Jesus did? In every case. Three phrases. Three words in the English language. It stands written. Satan also used the half-truth approach. Everything he said was half-true. Jesus could turn stones into bread. He turned bread into bread many times. He put coins in fish's mouths. When he had bread on the seashore after the resurrection, I don't think he went to a bakery. I can't prove it. But And God had promised him all the kingdoms of the world. They were his anyway. And he was the son of God. The temptation again in every case was take what is already yours, but do it instead of loyalty to God and dependence on God, do it independently. And Jesus each time came back to him with scripture. Not scripture memorized at random. He took the precise verses of scripture that Satan used from the same, mostly from Deuteronomy, which is one of the books of the Bible. And he completes the service, completes the truth, exposing the lie and giving the full truth instead of just the half truth. And so Satan slunk away. Until approximately two years later, he reappeared again. As Jesus was nearing the end of a life of perfect obedience to God, the last act of which would be crucifixion on a cross, Satan came again with full force. This time the battle takes place in a garden where, they, where Jesus prays. And the prayer was so intense that his, his blood came out like drops of sweat. And at the end of that, he broke through to the same choice again. Not my will, God, but your will. Not the way of independence, but the way of loyalty to God and dependence on God. And so that took him to the cross. And the Bible tells us that on the cross, Jesus broke the power of Satan over us through his death. His resurrection then became the proof of his conquest over Satan. And it is in union with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection through faith in him, that we are now able to face the tempter. Because now we know the tempter's strategy. We know he's been a defeated enemy. And we know that the one who defeated him as man, that's why Jesus' humanity is so important. It was a man who surrendered this glorious destiny to rule and to subdue creation. And it is a man who has won that back to us, for us. And knowing that, we are able to face the enemy once again. This time with the confidence of hope.
and hope of victory. So what I'd like to do is to draw this message to a close by speaking to two groups of people. First of all, I want to speak to those of us, which is most of you, who are already followers of Christ. And I want to stop here, because I don't know where you are today. But some of you may be right now in the middle of temptation. By the way, sometimes these battles can go on. During my sabbatical, there was a six-week battle that I had as far as the uh, emotional and the aesthetic side of us was concerned one time. It'll make its way into a sermon in Isaiah one day, but it was a long six-week battle. So I want to ask you, where are you in this sequence? Is your confidence in God's word being undermined? Is the character of God, especially His goodness, or His sovereignty, or whatever, being called into question? Are you gazing at the fruit right now, whatever it might be? What kind of desires are being evoked right now? Is it the promise for the satisfaction of physical desire? Emotional? Aesthetic? Intellectual? How close are you? I would just invite you. Unite yourself with Jesus again. Look where it starts. It starts with the undermining of the confidence in the word of God. What word of God do you need to oppose to correct the half-truths of Satan? A couple of weeks ago when we gave our sabbatical report, Sham talked to you about this beautiful conversation she had with that lady that last week, who was just contemplating a very unwise marriage. And the amazing thing is that Sham and I were talking about afterwards, she said, as I had to continue to tell her story after story from the Bible, she knew nothing. The woman had been a Christian for years. Did, just didn't know. And, and, and that same phenomenon was repeated again this past week, talking to somebody else, uh, contemplating a clear action contrary to the word of God. At one point when asked, what has God been saying to you in his word today? The deadly silence spoke volumes. Listen, we are sitting ducks for the devil if we do not have a mind that is being progressively renewed by the word of God. If we are not able to say at some point, it stands written. And so, may I encourage you, if you are not serious about the word of God, to get into those practices and take out it's, it's one, one tenth of a sermon is not enough to amplify this. That's why we did that whole series on catching the wind of the Spirit last year. There are three sermons in there on Scripture. How to interact with Scripture, uh, how to study the Word of God, and how to use it in prayer. Take out those three sermons, read them again, but I beg you, get serious. Another time, a few years ago, Sham was called out to visit a young woman in this congregation whose marriage was falling apart. And as she sat and spent an hour with her, talking to her, praying to her, beginning to talk to the scriptures, it became apparent she hadn't read her Bible for years. This, if his fundamental technique and strategy is to call into question the word of God, and we don't even know it. So that's my challenge to those of us who are believers. 
and for the others of you who are still on that spiritual journey, not quite uh, having made that commitment to follow Jesus, thank you for coming to these services. We appreciate the opportunity for us that you give to us to explain what we believe, why we believe, and for you, the message is a single word, repent. And don't be put off by all kinds of distortions of repentance, you know. The bad experiences you may have had in church, the kind of breast beating that is undignified. Repentance simply means change your mind. And specifically you need to change your mind about five things that come out of what I've said to you today. First of all, you need to acknowledge that you are indeed marked by the five faces of death. That psychologically, physically, vocationally, spiritually, you're dead. Alienation, maybe a word you like better, is thoroughly biblical. You are internally alienated, you are alienated from God, other human beings and nature. Secondly, that as a result you are powerless against Satan's devices in this world and headed for an eternal separation from God. And if you don't believe in him, that's how powerless you really are. Thirdly, that the curse of death in all its forms, including eternal death, has been taken by Jesus on the cross. And through Jesus' perfect obedience to God as man, the power of Satan has been broken. Fourthly, believe that this triumph has been declared in his resurrection. And fifthly, receive the forgiveness of your sins in his death and receive his resurrection life through his spirit. This is what it means to repent. Now I'm aware that one sermon, five sermons may not be enough to answer all these questions. I'm aware that some of you may have some honest intellectual issues when it comes to believing the Bible. And others of you may be struggling and say, yeah, Sundar, you've given us some re- uh, rationale and I, it makes sense about evil in this world, but I have many more questions about it. I understand that. So in that welcome package that Sam referred to, there are two sermons, in fact, there are four sermons, but two of them deal entirely with this topic of uh, trustworthiness of the Bible and uh, the issue of problem of evil. So I trust you will take that package, listen to those sermons, and they will help you understand. And as far as these are concerned, we have a ministry in this church called Alpha, where over a nine-week period, in a very non-threatening setting, where you have a good meal together, and meeting with the same group of uh, people in a small group, listening to very, very provocative, and yet uh, illuminating input on each of these questions, you have a chance to examine Uh, these questions a little bit more and progressively. Just listen to that. I want to bless three groups of people today. Some of you, Christ followers, have failed. And you're coming here this morning having bitten. I just want to bless you with the forgiveness of Christ. No power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck you from God's hands. And so begin again. Much wiser now. Because you know the strategies of the enemy. For those who have not yet bitten, but are in the middle, run to his word. May you hear that word, either directly or through a saint of his at the right moment, walking you through the words that you need to hear. And I bless you with a receptive and a glad spirit. And for those of you who are not yet Christ followers, I want to bless you with the attractiveness of Jesus. (laughs) May you find Jesus so intriguing that you will take the next step towards him. Go in Jesus' name.